Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I, just, I just want to express my appreciation for Gene uh, and the choir for leading us uh, in music this morning. If you appreciate their service, would you let them know and, and give them a hand, please? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, this morning, uh, we are starting a, a new church life series called Forged by Grace. And uh, today I want to start with a couple of questions. Uh, I want to try to get some feedback from you if, if I can. The first question is this. When you imagine what a church would look like if it has been thoroughly, I mean absolutely thoroughly forged by God and His grace, when you imagine what, what the culture among the people would be like, how do you think other people in the city and in their neighborhoods would describe that church has been forged by grace. How do you think other people would, would describe a church like that in the city, in the neighborhood? What comes to your mind? What they do and characteristics? Inclusive, yes. What else? Community, yes. They're kind, yes. What's that? Yeah, filled, filled with grace. Like their grace is, is obvious through their, their words and, and deeds. Anything else? Family. family. Good. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Okay. What's that? Yes, absolutely. It's good. Now, think of a church that's lost its way, that's uh, not forged by grace, it's being forged by, by something else. How do you think the people in their city and neighborhood would describe them? A graceless church. Hypocrites. Judgmental. Yes, hypocrites, yeah. What else? Clickish. Uh-huh. Selfish. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, here's, here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that it's so easy, so easy for, for uh, churches to drift in the wrong direction. I mean, you don't drift in the right direction. If you drift, it's usually in the wrong direction, right? That's just the way it goes. So, we need to talk about it. And as we do, we got to look at it through the lens of our most important message, which is the truth about Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done by sheer grace. Now, there are two reasons we can't really know or fully know Jesus and who he is, unless we also come to grips with what Jesus said to us and his followers said about the church. The first reason has to do with, is the message of Christianity even true? Okay, f whether it's fair or not, it's been said that one of the strongest arguments against Christianity is Christians, right? We've heard that before. Sometimes it's not fair, and sometimes it is. And when it is, another way of putting it is, if Jesus is so great, why is the church so messed up? You really can't come to grips with Christianity without coming to grips with the church. The second reason is that in order to intelligently commit yourself to Christ, you need to know what it is you're being called to. 
When Peter says in our text, uh, save yourselves or be saved, he's not simply asking for individual decisions for Christ. We are not being called into an individual relationship that is just limited to being between you and Jesus. He is calling his people to be part of a, a larger people. He's calling you to be part of his people. And that's why we say around here at, the, at this church that we want to be about leading people to Jesus and his family, right? We are called to be a citizen of a radical new society, a new city called the church. So to make a commitment to Christ, you have to know what that commitment involves. Now, I'm planning on revisiting this text a little later in, in the series, so for now we're just going to mainly focus on, on verse 40. Peter is preaching, and he says this. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation, or be saved from this crooked generation. Your, your translation might say this corrupt generation. Now, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see that Peter is offering a widespread, far-reaching, across-the-board, transforms-everything kind of a salvation. Not just a salvation between you and God. What I mean is this. God's salvation, if you're taking notes, God's salvation renews the world. Now, is, is Peter offering peace in your heart? Yes, but it's so much more. Is Peter offering you, you know, like uh, meaning in life and purpose in life? Yes, but he is offering you so much more. The salvation he's offering is, is far greater than you think. Now, the word crooked or corrupt, which you might have in, in your translation, corrupt means malformed or malignancy. Like when your, your stupid laptop that's eight years old tells you that an important file is corrupt. What's that mean? It could mean that your computer hates you and wants you to be miserable, right? At least that's how I view it. But what it's really telling you is that the file is seriously damaged and messed up, right? Something's terribly wrong. So Peter is not saying that his generation is like extra wicked. That's not there, there have been generations far more wicked than his generation. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the plain fact of human existence, that there is a malignancy, a profound malformation. And Peter is saying, look, I, I don't want to just address your individual needs. I'm, I'm talking about something far more radical than that. I'm talking about a salvation that renews you, that, that renews the world, that renews absolutely everything in it. And Paul tells us in, uh, in, in Romans 8 that all of creation is in bondage to corruption, that, that creation is groaning for renewal because everything is falling apart. And we all know that, don't we? That it's all falling apart. And we see that in just the everyday stuff. You ever forget about that leftover meatloaf on the bottom shelf of the fridge in the back for three weeks? What happens? 
Yeah, you going to eat that? No. Why not? Because it's a biohazard, right? And scientists talk about entropy and, entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is moving to disorder. It is spreading out, expanding, and falling apart. And I've told you before, I don't know anything about thermodynamics. I don't need to. I just look in the mirror, and I can see that I am spreading out and expanding and falling apart. And relationships fall apart, right? Even if you have a good, strong marriage, you know what? There will be a day when one of you will be standing by the grave alone. We all long for renewal, right? We all long for all things to be made new, and yet those longings see, seem totally and completely incompatible with reality. We want to live, but everything's dying. The world is corrupt. And the scriptures, like Genesis 3, tell us why. As sin has caused the malignancy. And deep down, we all know that. We see it all around us. The brokenness, the, the, the crookedness. And we doubt that, I mean, it's so bad. I mean, we doubt anything could be done. Well, thank God for the hope that he gives us in his word when he promises to make all things new. He is Lord over creation, and he promises that things are going to change. God tells us in the book of Isaiah, Behold, I will create a, a new heavens and a new earth. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed for misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. And Isaiah goes on to say, Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like the deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. They will enter Zion or God's city with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sign will flee away. What a beautiful, beautiful passage of, of Scripture. Do you believe it? It's hard to believe when you watch the news, right? This is hope right here. When God gives us hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's a promise. That's the hope that we have. See, Peter, when Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation, Peter is saying, I have a salvation I'm offering you that changes everything. 
There is a power that heals the malignancy in the, 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 in the human existence. There is a power that reverses the fallout of sin. There, there is a power that brings together everything that falls apart. And Peter is saying that power is in the world right now. And I am offering you that kind of salvation right now. It can begin the healing work in your heart and in your life and in your people right now. And there is a day coming when Christ will return to complete it and all things will finally be made new. You know, maybe you're not so sure about Christianity, but, but you're willing to think about it again. And maybe you think, you know what, I need, I need someone to help me with my problems or help me with my goals or I, I need peace of mind, a little inspiration to kind of keep me, keep me going. Well, well, Peter's saying, listen, you have no idea. It's so much more than you think. I am offering you a salvation that radically changes everything and it radically changes you. And that's next if you're taking notes. God's salvation makes us a new people. Peter says, get out of a crooked generation and into a new one. Now, there is all kinds of talk, all kinds of talk and all kinds of, of books about generations. They have the builders and the boomers and generation X, millennials, generation Z. But what's generation? A generation is a new people with a unique worldview shaped by a shared story. I'll explain what I mean, but I'll say that again. It's a new people with a unique worldview shaped by a shared story. This story of any particular generation is their common experience and of, of certain formative, historical events. So it's more than just having things in common. So much more than that. There is a big difference. Ever go to Grand Avenue on a Friday night for cruising Grand? Yeah? All kinds of car clubs represented there. They show up with their, with their classic cars and hot rods for this giant car show, and, and so many of them show up every single Friday for six months every year. They spend a lot of time there, getting to know the other owners, telling stories about their cars and what they did to fix them up, eating together, listening to classic rock, right? So much in common. They even have their own jargon, their own language. Sometimes Shannon and I will forget it's Friday night and we'll, we'll turn on to, to Grand Avenue and there's all these cool cars and, and we're in the middle of it and we're not going to get anywhere fast. But it's cool. I'm enjoying the sights. It's, it's, and I'll say, Shan, check out that 55 coupe right there. It's like chopped and dropped on bags with shaved doors and wheel skirts. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> That's good, right? I'm like, Yeah. And as much as these car clubs uh, people have, have in common, as much as they have in common, they're still just a, a club. Renewing cars is, is, is fun, but it doesn't 
renovate your values or transform your philosophy of money or, or show you how to, to relate to people of a different race or how you deal with emotional problems or, or shape your, your business ethics or how you deal with suffering or your, your approach to, to marriage. It's, it's not transformational. It doesn't transform people and society because it is a club and not a generation. In a generation, you have a radically different view of reality and values, a shared formative experience or, or story that, that forges a, a new people. Uh, you know, the, the generation that, that lived through the Great Depression just saw a documentary on it. And they ended up with a whole different view of money and security, didn't they? Uh, totally different than following generations. Generation shaped by World War II felt like, you know, right and wrong, good and evil were absolutely clear. And then the generation shaped by Vietnam, it was, it was different. Nothing seemed clear. And following 9-11, it seemed like a, a weird conflicting mix of, of both. And as a result, each generation has incredibly different views of authority or patriotism or government or the media, what it means to be a citizen. Each generation struggles to understand the, the ones before them or the ones after them because they have radically different stories that have shaped them, right? Peter says, when you become a Christian, you are not joining a club, it's so much more than that. Church is not a hobby. It's not, just, it's not even just something that you give your life to to get some relief or a way of dealing with superficial realities of life and then, and then doesn't change your values and, and, and worldview. I mean, Christianity is not a club. It is a new generation, a new people, a new city with radical view of reality that has been sh shaped by a shared story. Third, God, God's salvation gives us a new story. A story that overwhelms all other stories. It overwhelms your story. See, our formative historical event is a, a story about how God has come into history and created a people for himself. You know, every religion around the world, for, you know, since forever, says that salvation comes through principles. Know them and do them. But true Christianity says that salvation comes through an historic event. A story far more formative than the Great Depression or any war. If you're Euro-American, it's far more formative than the fact that you've been the dominant culture in North America. If you're African-American, it's far more formative than slavery and segregation. It is a story so powerful that it overwhelms all other stories. So what's the story? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the earth to be a garden, but it became a wilderness. But one night, 
God appeared to Abraham and promised to make from him a new people. And in this people, God will show the world the blessings of life with God. And and God said, I will go into this people and and by my love and by my power and change everything about them, how they look at races, how they look at work, how they handle suffering. I'm going to change everything. And on that night, God took a vow and he says, I will create this people no matter what it costs. But this people throughout the Old Testament seemed to be a failure. They were not a light to the nations. Finally, a man shows up who is not just part of the people, but the entire history of this people is retold in him and in his life. He comes out of Egypt, wanders in the wilderness is tempted, fed in the wilderness. And like them, he's called to care for the poor and and the orphans and the widows. But he actually does it. He's called to love God with everything in him and his neighbor as himself. And he actually does it. And then finally, on a dark and stormy night, he pays the price for his people that centuries earlier, God said he would pay. And he is cast out not into a different land, but into judgment and wrath. And he is exiled, not from, you know, good pasture land, but from God the Father himself. And he did that in our place. So now, when by God's grace we receive him, we receive his story. What I mean is that his story becomes your story, becomes our story. All of our frustrations, all of our hurts, all of our disappointments, all of our failures, his story overwhelms your story, it overwhelms our church's story, it overwhelms our our national story, overwhelms our suffering, our humiliation. No, we're we're all so messed up. We long, we look at our life, we long for a new story. Well, Jesus gives it to you. And here's the amazing thing. You are now treated as if you paid for your sin in full. You are now treated as if you lived a perfect life and were raised from the dead. You have a whole new story that is no longer affected by your past. You've become a a new citizen of a new city with a radically different view of, of reality. And this gospel story changes everything. This last part, let me just highlight three things, specific things that the gospel story brings. And the first one is this. The gospel story changes our attitude about the truth. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the truth. Now, there are two common approaches to truth. And we'll call them moralism and relativism, and I'll explain. I'll flesh that out a little bit. The moralist says, there is truth, you better do it, period. The relativist says, you create your own truth, so don't sweat it. But the Christian says, there is truth, and he is a person. And we have totally failed to live the truth, but he has lived it for us in our place. 
And so as a result, Christians love the truth. They love it. They should. You know, moralists don't really love the truth. They're afraid of it. They say that truth equals rules, and they need to know that how they're, you know, that they're being good. And relatives, relativists don't love the truth. They don't believe it. The Christians love the one who is the truth. And you know what the fruit of that is? The result? There may be a better way of saying it, but Christians can have like the, the guts of a moralist without being judgmental and the love of a relativist without being wishy-washy. This is how the, the early church changed the, the world. Moralists can't change the world because they're too busy working on their, on their rules and relativists can't change the world because they can't say what's wrong. Well, they do, but it's, but it's inconsistent because their whole premise is that there is no absolute truth. But the gospel story gives you the freedom and the love to, to work on cultural renewal without being judgmental. It changes your attitude towards truth. Second, the gospel story changes our attitude towards others. Verse 42 also says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They, voted them, they devoted themselves to each other. Now, here's the deal. Fellowship, being devoted to each other, includes sacrifice. It just does. It includes sacrifice. You know, relativists don't have a consistent reason to make that kind of personal sacrifice for others. And when moralists make personal sacrifice, they become doormats because they need to know that they're being good people, and it's really all about them anyways. But the gospel story enables you to give yourself in self-sacrificing love for others because Christ has given his life for you that you might live forever. There is amazing freedom and love and, and confidence and grace in that. It changes your attitudes toward, attitude towards others. And third, it changes your attitude towards the poor. Verse 45 says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know what? Whether they're open and honest about it or just if it's just internalized, uh, moralists despise the poor. They consider the, the poor a nuisance. I've heard that talk. They're dragging society down. They're poor because they're wicked and lazy. They're irresponsible. And relatives ridicule the religion of the poor and see them as just in being in need of their expertise. You know, They're poor because they're helpless victims of their environment and upbringing, and we will save them. <laughs> but the gospel story enables you to be humble, not superior. You know why? Because we know that we were totally spiritually bankrupt, but we were saved by Jesus' free generosity and grace. I'm not better than anybody else. The gospel story enables us to be gracious and to not worry about, you know, who's worthy and who's not. You know why? Because we know that we didn't deserve Jesus' grace at all. 
And the gospel story enables us to be respectful of our poor brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that we can learn from them. You know what? The early church, you read, I mean, later you read about all the messes that they had, like in 1 Corinthians and stuff, but in this beautiful snapshot here, the early church loved the church, loved the truth, loved one another, loved the poor, and what was the result? Verse 47, it says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church, the people, the the culture of truth and love and grace being devoted to one another was appealing to the people around them. It drew them in. The people around them saw the beauty of how God intended us to live and they were drawn into this new way of life. That is the kind of church we want to be. We won't be perfect. But we will continue to pray and sacrifice to be that kind of people, to be that kind of church. And it doesn't happen by you living vicariously through the church staff. God has given you a calling to be a part of a larger people, where we do this in community together. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I remember the story of the man in the Iron Mask. Whether you've read the book or seen the movies, whatever. It's a pretty famous story. And the story goes that the rightful king is locked up. He's in prison. And the wrong king is on the throne. And since the wrong king is on the throne... Everything is falling apart, and the people are are suffering. The situation looks absolutely hopeless. But then the good king gets sprung from prison, and he gathers around himself a band of loyal followers to serve him in establishing a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of righteousness. This was a dangerous mission, and one of the followers was asked, you know, why are you willing to risk your life doing this? And he says, you know what? We have all dreamed for a very long time of a day when we would serve a king who is worthy of the throne. And I stand before you this morning to proclaim there really is a king who is worthy of the throne. He has been sprung from death's prison. He is alive and well. And he is now gathering around him a loyal band of followers who will give their lives in service to him and his kingdom so that one day everything that is broken in the world will be made new. Amen? And would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your amazing grace. Uh, we thank you that, that uh, you call us over and over and over again uh, to remember uh, your story of who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's doing to redeem history, to redeem the world to redeem your people it's by your grace God I pray 
that you would forgive us for the times that we forget how desperate we are for your grace. It shows up in the way that we look at others and treat others. God, I pray that you would give us as individuals and collectively as a church a deep humility that is rooted in the confidence of the gospel. God, I pray that you would make us fearless in sharing uh, your grace with others. And I pray that we would do it in such a way that the people around us in our city and in our neighborhoods would be drawn to this new people centered on Christ. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that has lived their lives apart from uh, a new people, apart from you and your family, I pray that this morning you would give them faith to believe, that you would give them courage and devotion to King Jesus and live for Jesus' kingdom of peace and righteousness. I pray that you would do that right here, right now.